0: Welcome to the Sanction Space podcast. I am Justine Walker, Head of Global Sanctions and Risk at ACAMS. This series brings you the stories behind sanctions. What are the trends? Who are the key people? And how do the threads of the past shape future thinking? Joining me today is Jonathan Hackenbroich, Policy Fellow for Economic Statecraft at the European Council of Foreign Relations. Jonathan is head of the Council's task force put for protecting Europe from economic coercion. He specifically focuses on economic coercion and geoeconomics and indeed sanctions policy. Jonathan, you're also an expert on German foreign policy. So a little bit of context here. For those unfamiliar with the European Council on Foreign Relations, It is an international think tank that aims to conduct cutting edge independent research on European foreign and security policy. It also provides really importantly in today's context, safe meeting space for decision makers, activists, and influencers, and really looks at shaping Europe's policy and their role within the world. So Jonathan, welcome so much, real pleasure to have you with us today. Hi
1: Justine, Uh, real pleasure to be here.
0: It's quite a complex introduction to your role at the council, and a lot of people will be thinking, what on earth does this really mean? Could we just really begin a little bit by the focus of your research? You know, it deals with economic coercion and geoeconomics, but for our global listeners, what does this really mean and what sort of issues are you dealing with?
1: What I do is look at the ways in which states use economic power for geopolitical goals or vice versa geopolitical instruments for economic goals and that's a question that's really ever more important as we've entered a great power competition that's not between two blocks that are disconnected from each other as we all know but rather between two very highly integrated economic spheres despite all the decoupling and where precisely those economic links get weaponized in one way or the other and sanctions are part of this. And and that's the way I look at them as well. They're one tool in the toolbox. You also have trade policy, export controls, and other things that are part of this economic statecraft or economic coercion toolbox. We at ECFR look at ways in which tools get used and what they mean for Europe.
0: And the task force that you're heavily engaged with, which is on protecting Europe from economic coercion, what actually is that task force? What does that do? Who's engaged in it? What sort of priorities do they have?
1: Basically, when you look at economic coercion and thinking about again, as I said, what does that mean that China increasingly is using these measures that the US under Trump with a very different policy and unilateral policy was using these measures quite extensively? What did that mean for Europe? And we noticed that to really deal with these issues, you have to bring people with different perspectives from the private sector, from financial sectors and non-financial sectors, but also public sector together and different departments. And that's what the task force does. So we at a fairly high level. We discuss ways in which concrete policy options that Europeans could uh, adopt um, and and instruments they could build to increase their resilience from economic coercion. To give you an example, third country sanctions like the recent ones, the very highly asymmetric reaction that China had against European individuals and companies following uh, European human rights sanctions that's exactly the sort of things we look at. How can you deal with that and make European policies, but also businesses more resilient? And I've mentioned some of the other instruments, uh, look at punitive tariffs and import curbs or controls like China has used on key Australian products to punish Australia for policies that Canberra has adopted, export controls that are increasingly extraterritorial, especially the Chinese ones for sensitive data transfers and so forth. And the task force is a sort of systematic consultation process. We don't decide anything and there's not necessarily consensus, but we take into account all these different perspectives.
0: Okay, and we're going to come on and discuss China in a little more detail. But given your expertise on German foreign policy, I think let's start with Nord Stream 2, because you know this is very central, a very big area of discussion within Germany and across the EU at the moment. Last month, you published an article on the Nord Stream 2 dispute and the transatlantic alliance. And there's one thing I just really want to pull out for our listeners because you gave a fantastic description and you described Nord Stream 2 has become a suitcase without a handle, hard to abandon, hard to take along. And this description is just fantastic. And I think it's just so true to where we are currently at. Can you talk us through what is at the heart of this saying, this suitcase without a handle, hard to abandon, hard to take along? And why is Nord Stream 2 such a sensitive political energy sanctions challenge?
1: Right. Because I think, yeah, we tried hard to think of a way of how do we view this dispute. And and the reality is that I think we're stuck, you know, Europe or at least Germany. But I think it's more than Germany because there are other companies involved from other European countries and the US are stuck in this debate. I would say it's much more complex than commentary often portrays it, because on the one hand, you have these US unilateral sanctions. Biden has sort of taken the pressure slightly off, but not really. And there's Congress behind the sanctions, as we know, make this a sovereignty issue for Germany. So uh, a question of, do you give in to economic pressure from a third country? And at the same time, on the other side, Biden has to look tough on Russia and wants to be tough on Russia and, and for good reasons. So while there are many reasons why Nord Stream 2 might not have been a great policy decision in building the pipeline, we're now stuck and you can't just expect Germans to retreat from it because it would be bad for Europe if American pressure forced the cancellation of the pipeline and left Germany and the others that participate in, in its construction bitter and beaten. But it would also be bad uh, for Europe if the pipeline ended up bulldozing Eastern European and especially Polish misgivings and uh, portraying Germany as a selfish actor. And, and that's the sort of situation which reminded us uh, when we wrote this piece um, of you know being at an airport with a suitcase that you kind of want have to take along because you don't want to leave your belongings, but it has no handle and it's really difficult to take it along.
0: And to give a little bit of flavour on just the strength of feeling here, because in March we saw President Biden, he described Nord Stream 2 as a bad deal for Germany, for Ukraine and for our Central and Eastern European allies and partners. And you know, he really reiterated the US as willing to any entity involved in Nord Stream 2 and the pipeline and also the sanctions risks that they should face. And he really stressed that people should abandon work on the pipeline immediately. I mean, these were really strong statements from the U.S. on an ally, you know, thinking about how much Germany has been involved in this. I mean, how's it been taken in Berlin and indeed other EU governments? How do they view the U.S. position on Nord Stream 2?
1: First off, I mean, in the German debate, the project is controversial. But of course, we're very close to its termination and there's just a few kilometers really left pipelining and stepping back from it is That's the first point, of course, will create quite a bit of economic damage of a pipeline that You could argue, which maybe should have never been built, but now that's even a previous government and so forth. And I do want to stress, you have to ask yourself, you know, Merkel, who's certainly, you know, he grew up in the Soviet bloc, an Atlanticist who, who advocated for joining America in Iraq against public opinion back in the 2000s. Is really holding on to this pipeline despite U.S. pressure. So there's a little more than pure, uh, you know, economic interest or even cozying up to Russia, which I don't think is the case here. I think it really is quite a bit, since this is a sanctions podcast about the sanctions and the unilateral sanctions, and in a way. They symbolize to Germans and Europeans more broadly. The French have also been hit by U.S. unilateral sanctions in the past. The U.S. is willing when policies diverge and, and opinions diverge to use these tools against allies or their projects. It comes at a time when especially an export-oriented and a trade-oriented economy like the European one and certainly the German one is really worried about setting a precedent of giving in to economic Blackmail. Yeah, I think there's an acute awareness that people in Beijing and in other places in the world are watching fairly closely. How do the Germans behave under economic pressure? And I'm personally, I mean, I haven't talked to her, but I'm not sure if Merkel is such a staunch defender of the pipeline, but it's a sovereignty issue. And if Margaret Thatcher, in 1982, during the Cold War, held on to a pipeline, the Trans-Siberian pipeline, and building that together with the Germans and the French, who was a uh, you know, really close friend of Ronald Reagan's, then you see the way she opposed sanctions underscores a little bit how difficult an issue this is of sanctions against allies or allied projects.
0: And often when we talk about Nord Stream 2, we talk about it in the context of the US position and the EU reaction and the German reaction, but clearly Russia are a key stakeholder in this. You know, the UN Security Council member, what has been their response?
1: Right, so I think that they're watching this very closely as well. When I talk to my Russia colleagues as well, they say it, this is a question of credibility for Moscow. And now, of course, we you know this does does not mean you have to build Nord Stream two just because you want to look credible in Moscow's eyes. But you also want Russia to take the EU and Europeans seriously, which hasn't been the case recently. And. There is a risk that third countries increasingly view the EU like, you know, a ball that you can kick around with economic pressure between the US, China, Moscow, and so forth. So in that sense, it is a credibility issue as well for the EU. There's a chilling effect on trade with Russia as well, of sanctions generally. So many more European companies wonder, can we do this or that in trade with Russia? And you could say that's good because it increases economic pressure. But because As we talk about sanctions and designing sanctions regimes because it's not tied to a particular policy goal and outcome in exchange to which Russia would face less economic pressure could contribute to pushing Russia toward China and an important trade market just lost without a policy goal achieved.
0: The pipeline is in the very, very final stages of completion. So really where we're at now, what are the immediate watch points? What should our listeners be most aware of?
1: The German elections, for sure, you could say that the Green Party that's polling very high could even come in first place, though I think it's more likely that they'll be second place, could change quite a bit and could oppose the the finalization of the pipeline. And they could credibly do so because they have a different policy. It wouldn't just be caving into uh, sanctions from anyone. I would also watch Russian reactions. If ever there was a compromise between the US and Germany, you could imagine Russian counter-reactions if the pipeline construction did not go through.
0: Just looking towards the future and very quickly before we move off Nord Stream 2, can this dilemma be solved? Is it solvable? I mean, what's your thinking on this?
1: I'm not so sure, actually. That's that's the honest answer. <laughs> um, we're really stuck. And at the same time, I, I would argue it needs to get solved. You could contemplate tying you know, finalization or at least use of the pipeline to certain conditions Russia has to meet. I think in Berlin, people are hesitant to go there, but I think they also have to make a step toward the US on this. Because we're so close to finalization, it seems difficult to see how it could get resolved, possibly under a new government, but they will also be in a coalition probably with the Conservative Party that wants to hold on to the pipeline.
0: So, for those of us in sanctions compliance, this is just going to be an ongoing matter of managing all the various elements. Let's change geographical focus a little bit because you spoke about China at the beginning in your opening comments. And, you know, the world of sanctions and China continues to make headlines. You know, just the sheer volume of new measures over the past year have just been phenomenal. Previous podcasts, we've looked at this very issue. But it has also brought to the forefront wider geopolitical considerations. And from your own work, you've looked at the escalating sanctions situation, but you've specifically looked at it, what does it mean for Europe's own strategic situation and vulnerabilities? Can you just sort of explain to us how the rise of Western China tensions has impacted your work and focus?
1: Sure, yeah, and so basically, you have the West's own measures, which can come with challenges, compliance challenges for the sanctions community. I would argue that China in particular is playing with these complexities and dependencies as well that, that at least Europeans face. So you you know it's squeezing or threatening to squeeze companies is the sense that you get sometimes in Berlin and in other places that decision makers and business leaders talk about. There's also talk in, you know, among Chinese scholars about how do you become a more central hub in economic networks so that you can have blocking powers, essentially sanctions powers or oversight powers. So that makes people certainly nervous about how Chinese, what we've seen with the popular boycotts and counter sanctions from the Chinese side to European or Western measures, what that can mean for their business dealings and what it can mean for the policies, because oftentimes we've seen publicly that these get tied to certain policies by the states these companies come from. It creates enormous complexities for the businesses that they find themselves caught in the middle.
0: Yeah, China is just such a a world-dominant trading partner in so many areas. You know, you've really sort of been focusing, as you've said, around how China can ramp up the pressure on EU decision makers, companies, etc. You've also talked about the EU must move quickly to build its resilience against such economic coercion. I mean, what does this entail? How can they move quickly and what do they need to do?
1: Right. So. I think the EU has a number of options at its disposal. One of the difficulties um, that the EU has is, of course, that it's such an odd polity, if you will. So you have trade policy, which is highly centralized with a lot of power on the European level, but then foreign policy and sanctions policy not being centralized and in the hands of member states what we looked at, and that comes in addition to the sort of uncertainty that third country sanctions oftentimes use. So the recent Chinese sanctions, we still don't really know what they mean for European individuals that find themselves on uh, sanctioned. And for the companies, the boycotts are unclear and, and vague, and they just have an effect, but it's not even clear how much these were state policies or popular reactions. And one of the first tools that we thought about was a sort of resilience office that would analyze and assess and also be these economic coercion instances, but also be a central interlocutor for the EU with other countries on their sanctions policies, ideally to get to a place where these sanctions are less harmful for European business and the EU and where European policies can be strengthened and be more resilient.
0: And are there specific vulnerabilities for Europe? I mean, in your analysis, do you think Europe is specifically vulnerable to a more assertive counter-sanctions framework from China?
1: I think so, in 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 some way. But I think the challenges of you know intellectual property and circulation are, if you ask people in, in the EU, and they sound similarly worried as those in the US. But I do think the EU is in a slightly different position. Take just the fact that trade accounted for more than 40% of the EU's GDP and thus also wealth in a way, which is significantly more than anyone else's and certainly than America's where it's 26% of GDP. So the EU is very interconnected with all kinds of markets. and, And in a way, it's a little bit like the situation that Japan finds itself in, where you have the US as an ally and as a security partner, but China is the biggest trading partner. That's not quite like that for the EU, but China... In official, you know, official language, you know, Xi Jinping urging Angela Merkel to make the correct judgments independently of others and the foreign minister warning against countries engaging in bloc politics and big power confrontations. It seems like China seems to be sending a message to the Europeans that keep in mind your economic dependencies on our market. And we've seen that with the sanctions and the boycotts in recent weeks where we might be ready to leverage that.
0: And just taking this a stage further, given the global context, both Russia, China, potentially other countries looking to use countermeasures going forwards, how does Europe protect itself? You know, what does an EU's anti-coercion policy or instrument really look like? Is there a reliance that they can have against countermeasures? You know, what can they do to really protect EU interests in this area?
1: So, I've talked about the resilience office. There's a little bit more, and that's not existent. We thought about it, and it seems like there's some interest in this idea. Something that's really interesting and happening on the EU level at the moment is an anti coercion instrument that you just almost mentioned when you said anti coercion policy. Because the EU Commission is proposing such an instrument and working on an instrument at the moment, which would allow the EU to take countermeasures, trade countermeasures, or investment countermeasures, or other restrictions. If there is a grave attempt, to coerce European uh, European policymakers through economic pressure or if that happens, maybe the attempt might not be enough. So that's something to watch how the EU deals with that. And, and it would, I think, be a big step forward in terms of making the EU a geopolitical actor, bolstering its policy, but comes with risks as well. And there are a few others. I, I think the digital currency and digital renminbi is, is something that Europeans can learn from and, and think about in their own terms. Because it, if it creates a system where you bypass the traditional banking system, that at least is something to watch because it could spell trouble for companies uh, that use it, that could be suspected of circumventing sanctions and so forth. And we have to think about a digital euro to have a clear alternative. And one idea is also to take into account market distortions and the cost that economic coercion from third countries creates and calculating that and possibly even redressing that on the EU market. That's something that is a further idea we, we analyzed in any case.
0: So for the sanctions compliance communities, just another huge layer of complexity and just shows us that the interaction between geopolitics and sanctions and trade is just so, so complex. Look, this has been really insightful and I just want to conclude with a really Quick final question. Given all we've discussed, how do you view the future use of sanctions? Will their effect be blunted, as some have suggested, or will it just remain the go-to tool of choice? You know, is sanctions going to be here and used in a continuing way or do we expect to see some changes?
1: I think we will see changes, but I think it will be, yes, the go-to tool of choice still, but we'll see increasingly that those that we sanction as the West, if you will, are also economically strong and could use these instruments. And so you could see a sort of battle of connectivity or battle of economic weapons where it's not clear who will impose their will in the end in some areas, at least. And a final thought is because we're seeing different economic models being very successful and then this goes well beyond China where the state has a much bigger role than in the, in the West. I think these tools will remain uh, on the table for many and their importance will increase and the complexities certainly for compliance will remain or get bigger.
0: Jonathan, thank you so much. We have gone from suitcases without handles to the battle of economic weapons. A lot to cover in this podcast. But I do hope listeners have enjoyed all that we've talked about. Please do sign up as we move around the world to hear the stories behind sanctions.
1: Thank you so much.